Finding Happy, Seven Steps to Relationships That Will Not Steal Your Joy is the new book by me, Nikita Banks, a licensed psychotherapist and life strategist. Leverage the knowledge you'll receive in this book to help you with the process of obtaining absolute clarity through the use of guided self-exploration. This process is necessary to help you master all your relationships in 2019 and beyond. Go on Amazon.com or BlackTherapistPodcast.com and grab your copy of the book guaranteed to help you redesign all your relationships based on two basic principles, health and happiness. Get your copy today. Welcome to the Black Therapist Podcast. The Black Therapist Podcast is a podcast where we discuss the unique issues people of color face when dealing with mental health issues and mental health diagnosis. Now, if you are new to our show, I am your host, author, life strategist, and psychotherapist, Nikita Banks, in private practice in my hometown of Brooklyn, New York. I am available for both psychotherapy and coaching sessions, and you can find more information about that on my website, NikitaBanks.com. You can listen to our podcast everywhere podcasts are found, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, YouTube, SoundCloud, Pippa, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and BlackTherapistPodcast.com. If you are a mental health advocate or therapist and you want to buy our podcast merchandise, you can do so by visiting our site. And if you want access to our free mental health tips, free online trainings, discounted selective services, and resources, do so by joining our mailing list by texting "get happy" all one word to six six eight six six. If you love the podcast, please like, comment, and share. We love to hear from you. And if you want to send me some feedback, guest suggestions, or simply to say hey, you can contact us at our website, BlackTherapistPodcast.com. Please be mindful that this episode and all of the information that we provide here is just a resource and a tool to help get you started on your mental health journey. If you are feeling any mental health distress or you are having any significant issues, please feel free to reach out to us so that we can find you a mental health provider in your area. Okay, let's go. Hey guys. So I got a few church announcements. Um... Most of the people who have listened to this show have known that usually in May I take the time off. And the reason that is, is because this show started when my son went to college and I used to record in his bedroom, which was just easier for me, but he is home. (laughs) He graduated now and he's here. And so I haven't taken off the time, uh, partially because it was just too much going on. And I I wanted to be relevant to discuss relevant topics, but I'm at this point now where I totally, completely need self-care. And so I haven't decided yet how we're going to do the break, but I always, I never know, right? I'm planning and trying to work out a huge interview for me on this show. Uh, I'm trying to get a guest. You know, usually people will reach out to me and say, hey, I want to be a guest on the show. But there's somebody that I really, 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 really want to talk to right now and it's timely. And um, so that'll be exciting if it happens, then you'll know about it. But I'm I'm trying to get the interviews lined up for the people that I want to just want to speak to so that at least you'll have some content coming within the next few months. Now, as a therapist, usually in the summertime, I'm traveling, um, I'm away. 
I, my business is usually slow. People feel better in the summertime. They're going outside. They're going on vacation. They are, you know, numerous scientific reasons for them just to feel better in the summer, right? You can be more active. There's more sun. There's more vitamin D, uh, especially in New York. There's a lot of things to do. So usually my business kind of dies down a little bit in the summertime, which is cool for me because I like enjoying New York City summers pre-COVID, right? But right now, who in the hell knows what is going to happen? And um, my business for the first summer that I can remember, I mean, it's just June, but has been really, really busy to the point that I've been exhausted. And so I will take some self-care soon. I'm not really sure when the next shows is going to air Please subscribe, sign up to our mailing list so that you are notified first thing so that you understand or that you you know when we get new shows and new content comes out. Okay. Okay. So the next thing is I ran for New York State NASW vice president. And I don't know if I won or not. Today is the last day to vote, I believe. If you're a member of New York State chapter of um, NASW, Please consider voting for me. But um, for me, that move was literally about being able to get my voice heard and being able to affect change for my people and have my seat at the table. And so, you know, in me voting, you know, obviously for myself, I was able to look at the other candidate and um, if I win or if she wins, I, I you know, I'm, if I win, I'm, I'm get ready to roll up my sleeves and get to work. There are a lot of ideas that I have to affect change within NASW as a member of NASW now because they cashed my check. I'm definitely going to be using my voice to um, affect change and ask for the changes that I want. As a member of New York City, I'm definitely going to I've decided that I'm going to be a lot more politically active here at home and it's just kind of like a weird time and a weird dynamic that we are having the conversations that we we are I feel like with all of the incidences that happened leading up to this this whole election of Trump and then his erosion of um, societal norms as well as eroding this idea of accountability or legal accountability. He's kind of normalized the fact that him being a president or him being a white man has not been able to be held accountable by anyone's standards, even if it's playing by the rules. And I think a lot of the the backlash that the police are getting right now, it really has to do with the fact that Trump is above the law and the police is above the law. And if we can't overthrow Trump right now, we're going to get rid of them. And so um, I started to think back up of like my experience with NYPD because I only live in New York for the majority of my life. I've had positive interactions with police officers. I'm trying to think of many in in New York. (laughs) I mean, honestly, me being a black woman, I've had a lot more negative interactions with them than anything. I have some friends on the police force who are super duper cool 
Um, I dated a cop when I was much younger who was nutty. He was like super crazy. And then I know some corrupt police officers um, just by virtue of like being in Brooklyn. Uh, I grew up around the 77th precinct. If you want to Google uh, the Buddy Boys, they were... It was a, it was a big big deal. Seventy seventh precinct is. Let me make sure it is the Buddy Boys. Yeah, Buddy Boy NYPD comes up soon as you put it in Google. But the Buddy Boys, I believe, happened in the seventy seventh precinct. Yep. Um, and so, I grew up in that district for the majority of my life. My aunt has lived over there on the same block. I've I've seen a dead body in the street where police officers also have seen it and they were like, hey, hey, happy Thanksgiving. And they kept driving. So like I've been shoved by police before. I remember one time me and my girlfriend was in the car and we were driving and the police were following me for like four blocks. And I have a hoopty. I probably had a hoopty. I have had several cars. I don't remember what I was driving that night. <clears throat> but uh, we were going to the city, me and my girlfriend, and I was, I remember being dressed down and I had a scarf on my head and I think it was raining. So I probably had a hoodie on and the cop was following me for like four or five blocks DTs, but you can spot them. was no big deal. Knew what it was. So I saw them it was a stop sign. I stopped at the stop sign and then I kept going and then they decided to pull me over. So they pulled me over. They got out. They came up to the car and they saw that we were women. And um, he looked at me. They shined a light in the car. They asked me something. I don't remember what they asked me. And I was like, well, what did you stop me for? And he was like, oh, you rolled through the stop sign. And me and my friends started laughing. And we were like, no, we didn't. And they were like, oh, you, yeah, you did. We're going to let you go with a warning right now. And I was like, no, I, no, we definitely, we, we didn't. We didn't. Like, we literally stopped. We saw you following us for four blocks. Who is going to run a stop, stop, like a stop sign with the police behind you? And he said something and it just was like, have a good day. There was another time where, damn, we, we were on Broadway that time, that night. And we were on Broadway another night. There was a night that me and my cousin was driving down Broadway and my aunt and her boyfriend were, I don't know if we were following them or they were following us, but I remember it was like 20, 40 guys out. They may go into the store. Maybe they were coming from a party. We don't know where they were coming from. And so I joked with my cousin, yo, lock your door, right? Wasn't like I was afraid of them at first. I don't know why I even said it. It was just like 40 people in the street. And I was like, nah, man, it's you know, Broadway. It's mad people out here. You lock your door, right? As soon as I said it, they saw us. We saw them. They came over, started like rocking the car. Like it was like 40 dudes. So I'm looking at the dudes and we're like breaking, yo, like, what are y'all doing? Stop, whatever. And then I started beeping my horn because I saw police coming. And it was a cool, uh, like a big old police van, bunch of cops in it. I don't even know what precinct we were in. Bunch of cops in it. And they saw us and they kept driving. And because my aunt was in the car in front of us or whatever, my aunt jumped out of the car, her and her boyfriend, and was like, what, what are y'all doing? 
Like, get away from there. Get away from that car. My, that's my daughter. Get out of there. And they, they, you know, they just ran off. Now, these were young people. I don't, I don't know if they were going to harm us. It really didn't get that serious. It didn't last longer than a minute. But I was like, yo, damn. The, like, I was less concerned with the kids rocking on the vehicle or whatever. And that's probably the last time I, I hate cars. So what car was I driving? Because it, it was a car. It wasn't a truck. I don't know, y'all. Pardon me. I don't, if, you, if you know me, know me in real life, you know that I very rarely have cars, even though I have a car now, but I just recently bought a truck. But I, I buy, I like trucks, um, kind of for that reason. But, you know, it was, I was less concerned with being hurt by the black guys who were like beating on the car window. And I mean, they were just knocking on the window or whatever, but just, I was just like, damn, you know, the cops really don't give a shit about us. And so just me being a black woman and feeling unsafe in my neighborhood and not knowing whether or not I can depend on the police, it was real hard. Then I had a cop push me one time um, for something stupid. Uh-huh. Then I live by a precinct who, I don't even remember the name of the precinct. Anybody who knows it's a precinct right by Prospect Prospect Park in the back of it. They all had a t- had sh- shirts on and like jackets that said Lords of Flatbush. And the Lords of Flatbush is a street gang. I'll never forget because my friend had gotten arrested, was in that precinct and they took uh, took the dog and we needed to go pick up the dog. And when we got in there, it's like first time I ever had to go to a precinct because someone had gotten arrested and I saw the police jacket saying Lords of Flatbush. And Lords of Flatbush is an old movie and it's a street gang. And that was another idea for me. Like, damn, yo, do they really think they, the shit, like they really think they're untouchable. Something got to give. But at that time in my 20s, I didn't know the power of, I didn't know the power I possessed. I didn't know the fact that I had a voice. I was, you know, dealing with so many other issues like poverty and homelessness and, you know, underemployment and lack of access. Like I had all of these other strikes against me. Fighting for police brutality was not something that I was thinking about. Right. Or going to be like, yo, why the cops got a gang gang situation? It wasn't until I got older and I had this idea of police as being unsafe And I think that really happened when I was in uh, my 20s. So I lived next door to a precinct and it was a special victims unit. And um, it was one particular cop in there was very, very nice to me, me and my son he would see me every day. He would ask me where I was going. Could I go? Could we go on a date? He had a visible wedding ring. It was an older white guy. And I'd be like, nah, you bugging. Um, whatever. But he would carry my groceries. He'd be very nice to me and everything. But my son was pretty little. So he would speak to him. And at this time, my son was like, oh, I want to be a cop. I want to save people and help people. And I was like, nah, you don't. <laughs> and so um, I was sleeping in my house. And the news was on. And... 
come to find out the police officer that always spoke to me, that always spoke to my son, always be like, listen to your mom, you know, be a good boy, all of those things. He was arrested upstate New York for trying to solicit sex from a minor who was a boy. So there was this sense of like trust that was shattered between me because I was like, number one, I wasn't checking for him. It wasn't like I was going to ever go on a date with the guy. I thought he was a nice guy or whatever. But I don't know to know better. Um, But I, I was just like, damn, what if I like what if he's a real sexual predator and he I wasn't even his target? Like, what if he was just trying to build trust with me to gain access to my kid? It just made me sick in my stomach and he was a police officer so I remember going to the precinct the next day because I was dead sleep and I don't know something about something was like yo wake up and when I woke up I saw his face and they reported that he worked for so the fact that he worked at SVU next door to my house like it was literally connected to my my building and the fact that the the he the the things that he was doing on the computer he was doing from the precinct and then he went upstate to go and meet the boy and I guess they caught him like to catch a predator and like police officers was posing as this 13 year old kid he was trying to go meet with I was like like it was it was so messed up and shocking to me I remember going outside the next day for something coming in the house and seeing the the police officers out front I'm like yo what happened to your man like, y'all at SVU, y'all didn't know what y'all man was doing? And th- they were upset with me for even bringing it up. They were upset with me for even calling it out. And so it, there's this idea that there are good cops out there, and I believe that you want to be good. But I also think that when there's a pressure of the fact that I could be a good cop or I, and, and be a dead cop, or I could just be a bad cop and get along. I think a lot of a lot of people get along. And that's not just cops, right? I think that's just for everybody. I think police brutality is the is the the method of the point of entry right now. The just just the the part of contention that we are discussing where racism affects normal life. But I think that you have to be able to be a warrior about dismantling white supremacy everywhere and so there are these these memes going around I'm, I don't want to be a social media warrior for justice I want to be an actual warrior for justice I want to be out be able to affect change in my profession I want to be able to affect change in um, any way that I possibly can learn your civic responsibilities and your civic duty. If elections and voting didn't mean anything, they wouldn't wouldn't have stopped us from voting a long time ago. If education didn't mean anything, white people wouldn't allow us to have it. Anything a white person doesn't want me to do, I know that it's probably the way out. Just like I said on this show previously, when I tried to get my LCSW, it was a white clinician that was trying to dis- discourage me and she stood between me and getting where I needed to be. But now I'm in private practice and now I could bring other black therapists with me. I can make sure that the white therapists that come through me, that, that are supervised by me, that work with me, they have to do anti-racism work. 
I know that I have to, you know, my commitment as, especially now as a, as a supervisor, field supervisor is to make sure that I'm giving them the bias training that they need. Cause that's my responsibility. My responsibility is to my people. My responsibility is to, to uphold my colleagues and my students and my, my partners to a high standard, because if I'm, I'm very conscious and aware of the fact that my job as a therapist is to benefit and profit off of trauma and oppression. That's why they pay me. They pay me because trauma, trauma, oppression and and diagnostic work, right, is sadness. But we know that the racial effects or the effects of racial trauma is the reason why the majority of my clients come to see me. It's, it's the majority of what we talk about. And so if I'm able to make money um, off of pe- and profiting off of people's pain, then I have to be able to do what I need to do to make sure that some of those circumstances are resolved. I don't want to just keep talking to my clients about the effects of poverty and the effects of racial trauma. I want to get to that higher level stuff. I want to show people how to get to the bag. I want to show people how to, you know, become self-actualized. I want to, to be dealing with problems that's like, yo, I'm trying to break the glass ceiling. I don't want to be dealing with lower level problems and I, I don't I, when I say lower level I'm not I'm not judging the severity of the problems or saying oh well you know you need welfare well that's less low level low class or whatever I'm to, I'm only speaking in terms of Maslow's hierarchy of needs in the bottom of the period the bottom of the pyramid which is general survival safety uh food I want to I want to I want to elevate my people. I want my people to all be able to feel safe so that we can start talking about the next level. I want my people to feel feel good. I want them to feel like they can do anything in this country. So let's resolve the 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 lower level issues so that we can start leveling up. For those of you guys who don't know what Maslow's hierarchy of needs is that I'm that I'm discussing, um, Maslow says that the majority of, of people's problems, or you know, it's like a pyramid, right? Think of a pyramid, and the bottom of the pyramid is psychological needs, and until you satisfy, I'm sorry, not psychological needs, f- physiological needs, which means food, water, air, shelter sleep, clothing, and taking care of those things, right? So if you don't have any food to eat, if you're homeless, if you live in abject poverty, if you have any kind of insecurities and instabilities, that's an issue. And so until you resolve those things, then we can't talk about health. We can't talk about wellness. We can't talk about safety. We can't talk about money. We can't talk about anything else if that's where we are, right? And the next level is safety, right? The majority of of black people in this America and in in this America, well, in this, in this America, I didn't mean to say that, but in America, we are stuck at the bottom, right? So where I am right now in my life, I don't have to worry about food, shelter, where I'm going to sleep at, um, if I have any clean water. 
I don't have to really worry about any of that. I don't really truly daily work about worry about my personal safety or personal security. I used to. My house used to get broken into all the time. My car used to get broken into all the time. Right. As my son is entering the age where he's he's driving, um, I have to have these conversations with with him. You know, I like I said, I have a hoopty. I recently bought a different vehicle. I'm giving my son the car so that he could tool around and drive a little bit better before he goes out into the world. And I'm like, damn, well, my registration sticker on the car is not up to date because no one ever stopped me with it but I have to make sure that I get a new registration sticker if you're gonna drive the car my tail light has been busted for like a year even though I could fix tail light even though I ordered the tail light even though I have the tail light in my trunk <laughs> I ain't fixed the tail light cause it wasn't really all that important to me and if a cop pulled me over I would just go in the trunk and say hey see I have a new tail light I'm on my way to the the, the mechanic my son ain't going to know to say that. My son is not going to know to do that. They're going to just arrest his ass and say, hey, you know what? You got a taillight. So I don't, now I have to get the taillight fixed. I have to get the sticker fixed on the car. The registration is up to date. But I'm like legitimately the the epitome of driving dirty. For no, for no real reason outside of the fact that like it wasn't all that important to me. I never really get stopped when I'm driving. If I do get stopped, you know, I got the I got the hookup. And so I, I I rarely get bothered by the police. But now that my son is going to be driving my vehicle, I was like, yo, I got to go get this fixed. I got to go get that fixed. I got this to do. And I'm just letting you know that I'm going to do all those things so that you are safe in the vehicle and that there are not any issues. Um, That's scary to me, you know, knowing that. If a cop wants to pull me and my my boo over and assault him or assault me, there's nothing that we could do. There's nothing he could do. Um, in that moment, like maybe we can sue them or maybe we can do something afterwards. Like that's that's scary to me. So, even though I'm I'm probably at the top of the pyramid, I won't go that far, but I'm pretty much at the at the top of the pyramid. Safety is always an issue for me in this country. Um, physiological needs is always a, a concern for me. It's not like a daily concern. It doesn't keep me up at night, but it's a concern for me in this country. Love and belonging, friendships, intimacy, family, sense of connection. Those are the, the third level in the pyramid. And... I think that this is where we are right now collectively as a country. You know, I feel like as a country, we're moving up this pyramid. But the shatter in the in the foundation, which is safety and, you know, physiological needs, basic human needs. Once those things are like threatened, the whole thing collapses on itself. And the next level is is esteem, respect. Self-esteem, status, recognition, strength, freedom. You gain those things as you get education and money and wealth and career goals and all those things. And then self-actualization, which is just like, what is the meaning of life? You know, what is what is my purpose? How do I contribute to society? Those are higher level skills. So when I say lower level and higher level, it's not a judgment, but I'm, I'm speaking in terms of like 
you know, moving up the pyramid. So I hope that makes sense. For most people who are on the bottom, um, this says motivation decreases as needs are met. On the bottom. And by the time you get to the top of the period, growth happens. Needs happen and motivation increases as needs are met. So maybe maybe that's this this little intuition that's kicked off in my body to just kind of pull a trigger and do things. And I'm like, all right, well, I got money. I got I mean, I don't got a lot of money. Don't come for me because I ain't got I ain't got much. But, you know, like my general needs are met. My bills are paid. I don't really have to worry about um, survival. I have a, a career in education and, and I know how I can contribute to society. I know what my purpose is for now. And so I can start to really start investing in those things. But a lot of people don't know those things because it's, it gets so hard for us to move up the, the pyramid. And if we're by ourselves and we don't have the proper family and emotional support, it becomes challenging. Um, and I'll even say that for me, I got into a huge disagreement with my favorite uncle this week because he put some stuff on my Facebook page that I didn't agree with um, regarding the protests and um, I'm glad that I was able to like have a conversation with him about what I wanted and, and, and what my grievance was with what he said. It also kind of made me sad because I'm like, even as we as black people move up this, this move up in society in some sort of way, we're often looked at as we don't belong. We no longer belong in our, in our family of origin. Like we're not keeping it real or we're not telling the truth or like we're whitewashed or like we're Oreos. And at the same time, we are, we feel out of place with our white colleagues who also look at us as if we're fraudulent. And so there's this level of um, imposter syndrome that happens. And there's this split duality, like, damn, where do I fit in? If, if I don't, if I no longer fit in with my family and I no longer fit in with where the people that I'm, I'm calling colleagues and the people where, I'm I'm in my profession like what do I what do I do but I also can't stay with my family right I also can't can't just bond with them on the, on a lower level playing field and I, again that's not about me saying that I'm above them right but I can't like if I stay on the block or in on in the hood I can't help anybody get out um, there was an incident that happened in my my bigger family, my family from down south, and everybody was like, oh, there's a land dispute. And so we started talking about different things and who owns the land and, you know, who, who inherited and whatever. And my aunt was explaining to me, well, you're, that's your cousin and your cousin's an actor and your cousin's a doctor and your cousin is this and he's that. And I was like, we don't have any lawyers in the family. Like if we had a, a in-house family lawyer we'd probably resolve this land dispute. Who works in real estate here that we could tap into? And so like there has to be value placed in the black community for people who deviate from the, the normal path to be able to get the things that they, that they want to level up in society so that they can come back and assist. Not everyone is going to be on the front lines. Not everyone is going to march. Not everyone is going to go out there and protest but 
you could run for office, you could vote, you could, you know, use your skills elsewhere. If you are a teacher, there is a lot of racism to, to dismantle in the, the public school systems. There is a lot of racism to dismantle in, in the health system. There's a lot of racism to dismantle in the legal field. There's a lot of racism to dismantle in newspaper and media. Like, it's not about just one front. So you have to tackle racism and dismantling the system from every side that you can, which means that some of us as the black community are going to have to let some of us go. We're going to let, let somebody go out into the world and forage and, like, gain the resources that we need that we could collectively use as a people to come back and get everybody else. Like, that's how this works. But you can't keep holding on to folks um, and, like, throwing them away because they are not like you. My mother is was the only person in my family to have a college degree, and she was shunned for it. You know, probably it was other things, too, probably. Like, my grand, she was my grandmother's favorite or yada, yada, whatever. But, like, my mother said, like, I'm, I really wasn't her favorite. My mother didn't have favorites. My grandmother had favorites. But, you know, her, her version of the story is that my grandmother didn't have favorites. But my mother was my grandmother's well-behaved child. Like she never got in, into any real trouble. She graduated from high school. She went to college. She could contribute financially. When my grandmother got sick and needed to be taken care of out of her eight children, my mother was able to financially do it. You know, so I think sometimes you just bet on the short thing. And so, you know, instead of her being able to be supported by her other brothers and sisters for a number of years, my mother felt like an outcast. And it's not fair. Because she didn't drink and she didn't do drugs and she didn't get high and she didn't do the other things that they did. That was rampant in the 70s. It wasn't just black families. It was Hispanic families, white families. Everybody was like doing their thing. But my mother just didn't engage in those things. And she invested in taking care of her children and investing in her education and buying property and doing those things. But she had to do it alone and she had to do it with very little family support. That hurts when you feel like you're doing the right thing and you still feel like an outcast. Um, but you got to do the right thing anyway. You got to do it anyway. You got to be true to yourself anyway. And so there's that. Another thing that's happened recently, I've noticed. So I put up a post on the on the interweb. Uh, let me get my pull it up. Okay, so earlier this week, I put up two posts on Instagram, and um, I should be more active on Instagram, but I do everything you see, and ain't nobody got time for that. So, <laughs> so one of the posts said, dear white therapist, your silence is why we have trust issues, right? Um, and it was prompted by a call that I had with New York University's Silver School of Social Work, of which I am an alumni, and after the events in Minnesota, they put out a statement that had like an action plan. If you want access to the email, I will send it. I I am trying to, 
or it is my goal to compile a list of resources on my website so that people will have access to it. I am one person. I think I might actually get my intern on it this week so that she can help with this. Um, But I have a lot of black books, a black education, anti-racism resources. And so I want to try to compile some of the things that I've found online, hit you guys with a link, make a, um, like a Google doc for people to sign up to my mailing list and, and gain access to these educational resources. Right. But I put this post up, I was on this call with NYU silver and, um, Let me just read the post. It says, dear white white therapist, your silence is why we have trust issues. Uh, Yesterday, it was my honor to be on a call with NYU Silver alumni and current students to talk about my run for NESW New York State vice presidency and what we could do in social work community to affect change in the wake of the recent police killings. But also the medical bias, which has been exposed due to the pandemic. My time at Silver was an eye-opening bird's eye view of the bias, covert, and sometimes internalized racism I would face amongst social workers in the field. But the conversation was encouraging that they were committed to change. And as we are having more of these conversations out loud and proud in professional therapeutic spaces, the absence of white social work voices, or better yet, the damaging comments that are being made shows that some of you are not doing the work or living up to your professional ethics. And that is why I'm committed to not only make you see people of color, but black specifically, it is clear. Some of you need to be forced to see your own bias. This is especially important when you profit off the pain and trauma of my people, your silence and lack of introspection is why black people have trust issues and the damage you do by staying silent while we are suffering is why I will do everything in my power to make sure you honor our code of ethics. I call on NSW to make sure we are legislating with state boards for mandated bias and anti-racism training as a requirement for license renewal every single time. The damage done by well-meaning, in quote, white therapists to people of color costs lives and we must stand against it. Social work must stand for social justice. Um, I got a lot of likes, I got a lot of posts, you know, and some support from white therapists, but There was also this underlying theme of like, I'm a white therapist. I'm trying to educate myself. Tell me how. And um, what did did Don Cheadle? Don Cheadle made a great quote on this. Uh, If I can find it. Where he's like, yeah, my white friends have been reaching out to me. Um... (laughs) I'm paraphrasing, but he's like, my white, white friends have been reaching out to me like, oh man, I know it's so black, so hard for black people. Um, tell me how I can help. He's like, like I'm some sort of Negro encyclopedia, <laughs> some sort of Negro encyclopedia. And it feels like that. White therapists, black people in this country, especially social workers, right? I'm only, I'm only speaking for social workers. I am a black woman. I am speaking specifically for myself. Myself, my ancestors have been doing your emotional labor for far too long, right? We birthed your babies as doulas and midwives. We 
took care of your children as nannies and mammies and wet nursed them, which means they suckled at our teeth, literally, literally taking the food out of our own baby's mouths to feed your babies. Right. In this country, black women have remained powerful and employable in a way that white women have never because we were giving the actual hard labor that white women were, were able to escape because white men just felt like you guys weren't able to do it or you shouldn't do it or it was above you. But in the meanwhile, what ended up happening is that there was a power shift and a power dynamic where we all had to work in service of you. And so when you ask a black woman for resources or you ask us to tell you what to do or you ask us for information to help support you in your your knowledge when 90 percent and I'm I'm just making up a I'm making up a. I'm making up a, a statistic because I don't really care. But but the majority of the, the people that work in service jobs are people of color. I chose to be a therapist, but the reason that I chose to be a therapist was to be able to affect change in my community. I knew that that's what my, my community needed. My community needed mental health help. But I also know that there are probably other more powerful, and I say in air quotes, things that I could have done in order to affect change. I know that there were probably more lucrative areas of expertise that I could have utilized in order to make money, in order to do what I needed to do. But I come from a community that cares about my community. And so when you ask a black woman to do the heavy lifting on your educational experience. It is taxing. It is emotional. It is unnecessary. And it's ridiculous. What I need white people to understand is your lack of understanding is built in to white supremacy. White supremacy depends on your ignorance. It depends on your silence. It depends on you being able to separate yourself from your ancestors. It depends on you being able to see yourself as an individual and not as a whole. You know, and there are little nuanced things that you guys do culturally that I don't even think you notice, like the half sibling thing, right? And, and, and cousin once removed, like black people don't do that. We, if you black and you a cousin, you a cousin. Like my uncle asked me that recently. He was like, Oh, um, your son, I'm like his great uncle. I'm like, you his uncle. Like, I don't have time to be de- degrading grieves of, of uncles. I mean, yes, I'm my niece's great aunt, but I'm her aunt. Like, I don't got time to be. Eh, eh, eh. Eh. I'm her mama's aunt. I'm everybody's aunt. I don't care if they're married or not married. Like, I don't even care. Like, if you family, you family, you family. And that's how we look at it. When my sister came into my life, who's my father's sister, my mother had a conversation with me. And I remember saying something about, oh, well, yeah, I don't know. I didn't even know I had a half sister. My mother was like, okay, well, you got to make a decision. Either she's your sister or she ain't because we can't cut people in half. And I was like, dang, mommy. Okay, well, then that, that will allow me to make a decision of whether or not I want to have her in my life and I'm going to accept her completely as my sister, which is what I did. And so when I'm speaking to my white clients, I notice how they make the differentiation of the, the children of their mother and their father's marriage as their siblings. And then like everybody else, 
Like if mommy and daddy had babies, that's a, that's their family and everybody else is just people. But that's easy to do when you had a child of your mother and your father's slave who lived in your house and they served you and they ended up being your slave. So a lot of us don't understand like some of the things that we do historically and culturally have been passed on to us down from slavery from white people to white people from white people to black people and it's all collective trauma. I need you guys to educate yourselves. It's necessary. You participate in white supremacy. You benefit from white supremacy. You have white privilege. It, it's, it's not a neither here nor there. I'm not making a judgment. It's just statement of fact. It's a statement of fact. I know that me as a black woman, because of the historical effects of slavery, I have always been able to feel competent in a number of ways over white households, even more so than white women, because of the fact that my grandmother raised your babies. They raised your babies, they birthed your babies, they breastfed your babies, they they disciplined your babies. Talked back to your husband in probably ways that you couldn't. And it created a contentious relationship between black women and white women which exists today there was a report today that in the national organization of women there was racism of course there is there's there's trouble in the the space of damn i don't even know what the word is The women's right movement, women's rights movement, and feminism. Most people think that there's there's a divide between white feminism and black feminism, when literally black women have been writing, fighting for our rights forever. And every civil rights movement that happens in this country, from the the gay movement at um, Stonewall, shout out to Marsha P. Johnson. Um, rest in heaven um, to the women's rights movement. A lot of it started with us or a debate about race and a debate about slavery and a debate about civil liberties. Like we start the movements and they, they tend to be co-opted and like disrupted by other interlopers. And that's what we're seeing right now with these protests and these riots and all of these things that are happening. Like you have to have somebody to pervert the mission. Our missions are always intercepted. Black Panthers, um, Malcolm X, Martin Luther King. White people love trotting out Martin Luther King as if they didn't have FBI agents or spies in working with them to tear down the movements. So, I mean, I want to be a resource to you guys. 
And I, I want to get to a place, honestly, where I'm talking to white people about race and I'm able to educate white people about race. But I don't I don't want to have into I don't want to have unintellectual conversations with anybody at this point in my, in my life. Just just legitimately. I know that as a black person who's been educated in the black school, I actually got black history. I studied it in college. I studied it in middle school. I studied it in elementary school. Because just the environment that I had, that was a default. Unlike most people who get white history or whitewashed history. I knew about black contributions and I think it contributed to my level of self-esteem. But it didn't mean that once I got out into larger society and I started dealing with white people, I was like, damn, if I'm judging myself not only by my own people, but by their standards, where do I fit in? How do I measure up? How can I compete? And so I just decided that I was going to be in a world to be autonomous, to be like, you know what? I'm just going to create my own little corner right here in an environment that I could, could work with people who are, you know, culturally homogenous and culturally relevant to me. And I'm going to just stay over here. But playing it safe doesn't work. It doesn't work for white people who only want to be in white environments. It doesn't work for black people who only want to be in black environments, because at some point you want to level up. At some point, you got to take yourself out of your bubble. And I think that those are the chances that I'm willing to do. But black people have to make it easy for black people to also be able to do that. White people have to make it easy for white people to be able to do it. And you got to be able to do it regardless of whether your people support you or not. Because it is in the best interest of the mission. It's the be- in the best interest of the movement. So to the white therapists who are listening to me, if there are any listening to me, I just want you to know that. As long as you are doing the work and as long as you are taking an honest appraisal of who you are and you want to be better, find you a therapist of color and pay them. P-A-Y. Invest in your education. Stop asking for freebies. Stop asking for handouts. Stop, Stop depending on strangers to do the heavy lifting on your education. I'm going to create this file, but I'm not creating this file for you. I'm also creating it for black people who need to have the knowledge. I'm also creating it for everybody. But stop asking black people and not only just asking, but demanding and get real rude about it. Like I've seen mad comments about Oh, I don't understand. I'm asking a, a black person for information and why they're so rude. And on, even on one of my posts, a white woman was like, oh, you know, I feel attacked. And I saw it happening. Like in my mind, it was like four steps ahead of her. And I was like, damn, okay, let me intervene. Sis, no one's attacking you. You asked the question. It was answered. We're not going to help you. We're not just going to give you the information. We didn't, we weren't just given the information. We had to pay for the instrument. I had to pay my college tuition to get African history. My mother paid taxes in order to send me to a good school so that I can learn black history. I, my, my environment was cultivate, cultivated so that I got the information that I needed. So cultivate yours. You grown. I was a child. Do the work. Like only, We're only asking you to do the work. Because there's still black people that still have to unravel and dismantle the ideas and the miseducation that we received from 
a white supremacist school system and white institutionals, white institutions <laughs> sorry, who don't give us the things that we need. So when you are asking us for resources or how we feel or what, what it becomes a lot sometimes. Sometimes we don't even have it to tell each other. Sometimes we can't even have those internal dialogues with our own people. So we can't do it with you. And stop taking everything so personal. Everything is not about you. Hear me when I say this, white women. Everything ain't about you. Everything. You are not my standard for beauty, for for smartness, for education, for parenthood, for anything. Like you are not my standard. And I don't mean that to be disrespectful. I'm just saying like I have my own standards and I set my own standards. And so you guys have to find out where you fit in in this fight for white supremacy of the fight against white supremacy. You have to, to see what your role is to dismantle institutionalized racism. But first thing first, you have to acknowledge your privilege. You have to acknowledge that you, you gain from it. And then decide how you will use your white privilege and your white bodies to protect us or to intervene. That's how you become a real ally. Like, I, I, I honestly, someone asked, well, who has white allies? And I'm like, damn, I have none. Like My therapist is Jewish. Obviously, he's an ally. He's somebody that I trust. But even throughout this, this time right now with all this racial unrest, I, I don't feel like having those conversations with him. I don't think he'll disagree with me. I know that he's probably madder than than I am about anything that happens when there's when there's racial stuff that comes up. I know he's mad. Usually he's madder than I am about certain things just because I, I just don't have the energy to be mad anymore about it. But he also acknowledges that he's Jewish first. And whiteness was extended to him at a later date. He was not always seen as white. He was not always seen as privileged. So he acknowledges that that part of it. I have another, you know, former supervisor who I can rely on, but she does active anti-racism work. And so I can speak to her and have communications with her. And these are educated conversations. And I'm not I'm not educating her in any kind of way. We're having an intelligent conversation or debate on the same educational level about what we need to do to dismantle racism. Those are the conversations I'm interested in gaining. I'm not interested in pulling anybody who doesn't look like me along. Not right now. And that doesn't make me a bad person. And that doesn't mean that that you are a bad person. And it doesn't mean that I don't want to do the work of helping you get along to go along. I just, I just ain't got it right now. And you have to be able to respect the fact that it's not my job to educate you. Especially when my actual job that I get paid for is to create safe spaces for all of my clients, including white clients. Which is sometimes a struggle for me. But I do it every day. There was also another conversation about that when I was like, you know what? What post did I put up? I basically put up a post that said, 
dear black therapist, thank you for making space for white people in the midst of your own pain. And thank you for always being our black people's safe haven. And so there was some comments on that post that was like, oh, I fully believe that you should refer people out. I believe that you should choose self-care and literally no shade. That's usually me. I'm usually the one making those, making those posts. I tell everybody, get rid of the person, get rid of the person. I don't believe that I should, I should be required to work with and work for racist, active, open racist. I just don't have time for it. It's not even anything personal. I just don't want to do it. And there may be some people who want to debate me. There may be some people who want to you know, admonish me for saying that. But my thing is this, I, I live in Brooklyn, New York, and we live in an America that has a majority of white therapists in the field. There's no reason that you should pick a black therapist, in my opinion, to go to to talk about racist stuff, unless you want to inflict harm and inflict pain on me as a person. Like, there's no reason that a white person should come to me as a black therapist to tell me that they are racist. Cause either they want me to continue to discuss it with them and allow them the space to believe that it's okay. Number one, or either they want to have these discussions with me and watch me pussyfoot around it and ignore it, which makes me ignorant, which validates their white supremacist ideas. Number two, which is not something that I'm ever going to do. And from a clinical perspective, racism, as far as I am concerned, clinically, from what I understand, is maladaptive thinking. And it it shows a person's insecurities and their inability to compete. So I'm never going to be in a conversation with somebody who has maladaptive, distorted thinking or thought distortions and just continue to just be like, oh, okay, well, how's your day? Never going to happen. Never going to happen. Not unless they have a severe diagnosis. This is, this has to do with maybe um, schizophrenia or like I'm, I'm not I'm not going to do it. And furthermore, it's not a matter of me not servicing anybody who comes to me. I cultivate spaces for people. I cultivate safe spaces. I'm a curator. I'm not just a regular therapist. You don't just come in and get to see me. Everybody doesn't have access to my gifts. And there's, as far as I'm concerned, there's nothing wrong with that. Like I told my client, I mean, my, my intern, for better or worse, we had a conversation about um, therapists who haven't done culturally competent work. And, you know, my response to her was like, I assume that there are racist therapists who could work with these clients. I mean, it's not an assumption. There are racist therapists out there. I've seen comments from some of these white groups, therapy groups that I'm in. So I know that they exist. So let them service them. I'm not sure if that'll be healthy. I'm not sure if that will fix what the issues are in their life. But if race is an issue for them, if they're not willing to challenge themselves and be in, and, you know, do the internal work of like helping dismantle racism as somebody who looks like them, then I don't know what to do. 
But if there is a lower percentage of therapists of color and there is a higher percentage of white therapists, I don't see someone coming to me to take away a seat from a black person who may not otherwise have access to a a therapist who is culturally relevant and somebody who hasn't done the proper internal work to be able to be fully present with them and heal their issues without inflicting damage on them. Then I need to like pass on that and I make no apologies for it. I make no apologies for it. And so if you are a social worker and you are a student or you are in this place and and then let me say this too, I have been in instances where I have worked with people who told me that they didn't like me because of the color of my skin or they, well, nobody's ever said that. Let me back that up. No one has ever been like, Hey, Nikita, I don't like you because you're black, but I have had instances where people were like, Oh, I don't like black people. Like legitimately. And because of the setting that I was in, I still worked with them. And 90% of the time it was a situation where the person had one bad experience with a black person and just like attributed it to all people. And then I was able to say, okay, well you had that one bad experience with black people, but like, have you ever had a bad experience with white people? And they're like, yeah, all the time white people did yada, 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 yada. And I'm like, okay, so how is it that you equate all white people all black people with that experience with the one person, but not all white people with that experience of that one person. Is that right? Because there's, there's a thing in therapy, which is called black or white thinking, which black or white thinking is all or nothing. Right. Which is unhealthy. Like there's, there's shades of gray that happens with everybody. So you may have an interaction with a black person that may be negative, but that doesn't mean that you throw the baby away with the bathwater. You just say, Oh, I hate all blacks. Urgh. The same with white people. I've had interactions with white people who are positive. Doesn't mean I'm like, hey, I love all white people. Can't do that. That's not that's not realistic. Not realistic. So, I mean, you have to be able to do this work if you are a person of color and you're interacting with clients who need the additional support. But they've they've espoused bias or racist ideology. I would address it, but uh, other therapists are saying that they don't, and that's that's on them. Um, but I also don't have an issue with referring clients out who say stuff that I uh, 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 it's crazy. Okay, I will be back next week. Hopefully, I'll have the results of the election and maybe some some good news to report either way I want to be active um if you want to contact me about some things I'll have some ideas going on in my head I'm not like I've seen some people like hey let's start this let's do this I don't want to do anything just like straight off the cuff I want to be legally sound and um (laughs) on a good economic footing for the things that I want to do and that I'm going to accomplish and so that's where I am in this process but I just want to Thank everybody for the support that you guys have given me this season. We have over 250,000 downloads. Um, I want to grow the bigger. I want to grow the bigger. I want to grow the show bigger and better in the upcoming season that is coming up. I cannot wait 
to come back on. I, I'm not saying that there won't be a show next week, but I'm not saying that there will be a show next week. Hopefully I'm able to get this interview that I've been planning because it's pretty, pretty dope. If you have ordered anything from our shop, we have been on hiatus from sending out orders just because of supply issues and everything is made in-house. But we are starting to ramp up, which is another reason why I want to take some time off. So if you have ordered from me or you plan on ordering from my shop, uh, hit me up, send me an email so I can get those items out to you and uh, be well. Um, practice self-care, do what you need to do to like take some time off and breathe throughout this week. And again, to the black therapists who are listening to the sound of my voice, I want to Thank you guys for making space for all of us this week, for making space for your clients and every single thing that you do to provide the community with culturally competent and culturally relevant um, counseling. And to the white client, white clients, to the white clinicians that are out there and you are doing the, the introspective work to make sure that the the contact that you have with people of color, specifically black people, are positive and healing and you are also making a safe environment for your other clinicians of color in spaces when they don't feel safe or that they are the only I want to just implore you guys to not only be introspective there are times that I see comments from white clinicians that I read it and then my emotions will jump up and then I read read it again and I try to remove my emotions from the situation and sometimes I have to reread it with like black, right? Like if there's a racial thing in it, I will read it wherever they put, well, white therapist did yada, yada. I will put black just to see if, if, if I change the verbiage, if I will have the same feeling about it. And so where you can stand up for other people of color to, to, be able to lend their voice in a situation, please do. Whenever you can give the floor back to somebody of color who's been shut down or they're trying to get their point across and somebody says something negative or adverse to them, make sure you stand up for them. I mean, that's a simple, simple, simple way for you to be an ally. Check your own feelings. Think and rethink before something comes out of your mouth and don't respond in anger or in shame or in guilt. And I was watching the author of White Fragility, which is a book that I I hope everybody reads. And she made a comment, which I'm going to end on for white people. Stop saying I am not racist. She said, because a lot of people have done the most racist shit and the most heinous stuff in the, the name of not being racist. Every single time the white person apologized for doing something that expresses that that causes racial tension and racial harm, they often say that they're not racist and that, you know, that's not what's in my heart. I cannot see what's in your heart because I can't pull your heart out of your chest. But what I can do is see your actions. And I'm no longer interested in empty white apologies. I am very interested in changed behavior. And what I will do is take your apology as a down payment, but I want to see some actions that occur following the apology. Okay, so everybody be well, have a great week and see you soon.
Thank you guys for listening to another episode of Black Therapist Podcast. Once again, you can follow us on all our social media sites at Black Therapist Podcast on Instagram and on Twitter, as well as Black in Therapy on Facebook. Or you can follow your hosts, me, Miss M-S-N-I-K-I, thanks, on Instagram and Twitter, as well as you can find out any information about me at Nikita, N-I-K-I-T-A, banks.com, and on the show's website, blacktherapistpodcast.com. And don't forget, if you want to send us any general feedback, show suggestions, uh, show topics, or guest ideas, please feel free to drop us an email at blacktherapistpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. Be well.